are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. To find us this morning, first in the Psalms, in Psalm 19, and then we'll flip to Romans chapter 3 for a couple of readings this morning. Thank you, Matt. The law of the Lord is perfect and preserves one's life. The rules set down by the Lord are reliable and impart wisdom to the inexperienced. The Lord's precepts are fair and make one joyful. The Lord's commands are pure and give insight for life. The commands to fear the Lord are right and endure forever. The judgments given by the Lord are trustworthy and absolutely just. They are of greater value than gold, than even a great amount of pure gold. They bring a greater delight than honey, than even the sweetest honey from a honeycomb. Yes, your servant finds moral guidance there. Those who obey them receive a rich reward. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because God in his forbearance has passed over the sins previously committed. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. All right, thank you again, Matt. Well, it's good to be home with you. Esther and I were away this past week at the YMCA World Mission Conference. That is an event that happens every four years. I helped to serve on the planning team, and this year it was in Denmark. So today I feel like I'm coming back to you with a fresh report from the mission field of YMCA church ministry. And we were there, Esther and I, with YMCA and church leaders from Asia, Africa, South America, Europe, the United States. And I come back to tell you that God is on the move. It was a thrilling conference to be part of. I met people from the Czech Republic who are pioneering YMCA work in the name of Jesus in their home country. Three generations, a whole family expanding the ministry of the Y. I met the founding president of the YMCA of Mongolia. And this founding president brought the why to his country so that they could share the gospel with young people. That was the purpose of why they brought the why. I met the CEO of the Hong Kong YMCA. They operate a huge hotel there. You know, every country the Y looks a little bit different. So they operate the Salisbury Hotel in downtown Hong Kong. And he shared with us the story of how at the height of the pandemic, the fifth wave hit Hong Kong and they had three occupied hotel rooms out of 375. And this is their main revenue source. And he told us about how God provided for them in miraculous ways as then he felt compelled to open their doors to house foreign guest workers who had been stranded by the pandemic. Amazing. I met pastors and church planters from every nook and cranny of the globe. I met one gentleman in particular from Birmingham, England of African descent, and, you know, when you're meeting people, what do you do, where do you live? I looked at him and I said, we have the exact same job. 
He pastors a church in a YMCA and helps the Y to develop their Christian mission work. I met a YMCA church planter from Japan named Takeshi, where less than 1% of the population professes faith in Christ. I met a woman from Zambia, Africa, who told me the story of how God rescued her by means of an angel when she was being trampled to death in a bus accident. And she later went on to become the CEO of the YMCA of Zambia. We could fill many Sunday mornings with the stories that I heard. This morning I'll try and relate a couple of them while they're fresh in my mind as we illustrate the message. This summer we've been asking the question, what is God like? And we've been taking that question to the Bible where that question is answered. God inspired this book for us so that we could open its pages and he would reveal himself. He, the infinite God, putting it in plain language and revealing himself to us as human beings. And then the centerpiece, of course, of the whole Bible is the coming of God into the world as a human being, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we've been asking the question in these pages, finding answers. Starting last week, we shifted into what are called the communicable attributes of God, which is just a big way to say this, you know, communicate means to share something. And so the communicable attributes are things that God shares with us, things like his moral qualities. And so last week I wasn't here, but our own Kurt Hinkle took us into the first of those, and that is God's goodness. And on a side note, just having been away, I want to commend our tech team back there busy at the table who make it possible that you or I could be away for a Sunday and still stay fully connected to what's going on back home. And to do that from a gym in a YMCA in a mobile set-up, tear-down environment is no small feat. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for their ministry among us. So last week I tuned in on the live stream and I got to see Barb, Kurt's wife, as she led our Y Kids time, and I got to laugh along with you, Barb, as you put too much sin in the jar. Remember the illustration? <laughs> and the whole family was helping. And then Kurt, we're so blessed to have those who teach among us, and Kurt opened the word and took us into the theme of God's goodness. And I was just reminded, you know, watching from this hotel room in Denmark, how blessed we are when each one of us raises our hand, volunteers to serve, and puts their spiritual gifts into practice all across this room. So all that to say, we studied God's goodness last week, and that is one of his moral qualities that he shares with us. What that means is he's inviting us to imitate this quality of his goodness. And today the attribute in front of us is God's righteousness. Another shared attribute, something that God says, this is who I am, and I invite you to be righteous as well. Now, how we get there, Katie teed up really well with the kids, is really the central story of the entire Bible. Today, I want to start by just having us taste the biblical theme of righteousness in the two passages that we read, and then I'd like to address the question, what does it mean that God is righteous? And then finally, we'll explore what follows from his righteousness, because there's certain implications that will be imperative for us to see. So first, though, let's dip briefly into Psalm 19. 
We'll just pick up a few verses there and then in Romans 3. And I personally, I found narrowing down all that the Bible says about God's righteousness was quite the task. But I really like these two readings side by side. They express two different aspects of God's righteousness. So let's look first at the psalm, Psalm 19, if you have that in front of you. This psalm focuses on things that God has said. That his word, the things that he speaks and commands, are righteous. We're just going to sample a little bit of what we read. If anyone's looking for a little summer school lesson, and all the kids raise their hands, yes, summer school, no. But you could do this. It's a very interesting passage to do this with. Print it out at home, and you could take three different colors, and you could highlight, you could mark three different categories. Mark the nouns, and then the adjectives, and then the verbs in Psalm 19. It is beautiful, poetic language. And in our passage, I've underlined just some of the adjectives, not all of them, that I wanted to highlight. So here it is from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the law of God is a true expression of his nature, of who he is. In other words, what he commands tells us what he is like. You follow that idea in this psalm? Think about how this works with the laws of a nation. I love to drive fast. Theoretically, I would drive as fast as I could down the open road. But we have these things that get in the way of that in our country, and it's called speed limits. So we can't drive as fast as we want. And a speed limit is in place in our country because we live in a place that values the life and safety of other people who are on the road. And even actually values my own safety as the driver. So the existence of a legal speed limit tells us something about what our nation values. So now let's look at the biblical text. The law of God being perfect, trustworthy, and right is itself an expression of God's righteous character. He commands only what is right, and that means there is positive effect for the one who obeys his commands. I have never heard someone say, toward the end of their life, ah, I wish I hadn't obeyed God so much. That was really a bummer. I've never heard somebody say that. I have only heard actually the opposite of that expressed. And that is regret at years that were wasted or joy at following the Lord. So that's Psalm 19. We're just going to do a taste of these. Interestingly, that psalm is quoted in Romans, which is the book that we turn to now. The passage that we're in is Romans 3, 21 to 26, a passage with righteousness painted all over it. And we're just going to sample a few of the verses, starting in verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, testify. 
This righteousness, there it is again, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then we go to verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate what? His righteousness. And you might remember from when we studied the book of Romans last year that it was this passage, 3, 21 and 26, that Martin Luther called the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible, Luther said. And I would add something similar in my own words, that there is a centrality, a necessity to understanding God's righteousness that without it, You cannot understand the gospel or the rest of the Bible. And it was this kind of realization that some months ago, in the office, Katie and I were chatting about plans for the summer, both for kids and for Sunday morning. And we said, you know, there are things that are so essential, like the righteousness of God, that if you don't understand it, it is hard to understand anything else. So you could read the Bible, you could still do that, but it would a lot of it simply appear to be a collection of stories, many of them so obscure and so foreign in their cultural setting that you don't even know really where to begin to put the pieces together. So Romans tells us that righteousness is seen most clearly in the gospel. In fact, James Denny in his book, The Death of Christ, says there is no gospel Unless there is such a thing as a righteousness of God for the ungodly. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves because we haven't even defined righteousness yet. So let's do that next. And I've put it under this question. So very simple outline this morning. What does it mean that God is righteous? That's our question. Answer. This is my best attempt in my own words. God defines what is right. And always does what is right because it flows from who he is. Now we often think of something as right in terms of behavior. Would you agree with that? It's probably where our mind immediately goes. Doing right. And you can see in this answer there is a doing right A doing of righteousness that God does. Romans 3 talks about the justifying act of righteousness. But it comes from further upstream, doesn't it? Doug Moo, the Romans commentator, says, Always lurking in righteousness language is allusion to the character and person of God. God always acts in accordance with his character, and his character is righteousness. You could ask the question, I suppose, when it comes to this point, well, is something right simply because God says so? Have you ever wondered that? Those are those like late night ponderings when you can't sleep. Is something right just because God says it's right? The answer is yes, but it's not arbitrary. Righteousness comes from the character of God. He is himself the standard of what is right. Or as someone else put it, he is expression in action of what he requires. So note in our answer, he defines it and he does it. Or as they used to say in the 80s, he's totally righteous. Right? Wasn't that Ferris Bueller? 
All right. Now, what about, see, I just said righteousness is deep stuff. So you're still with me, Ferris Bueller? All right. Now, what about the whole concept of there being something right in the first place? Because that is challenged in our time. What about this notion that there is, in fact, something objectively right, which therefore means that there is something else that is wrong? You know, we kind of shirk at that a little bit because wrong sounds so judgmental to say that. Maybe there's a solution in this that we could all just be nice and we can all just be right. Maybe there isn't such a thing as the truth, but there could be multiple answers to the truth. To say that something is true and something else is false is such an exclusive claim. Maybe what's true for you isn't true for me. Maybe the mantra, I think I remember Oprah saying that somewhere along the way, maybe the mantra is right and it is just about you speaking your truth. And that's what matters. Well, as we think about these things, we realize that the relativity of truth is not sustainable. Philosophically, this whole concept, postmodernism, lasted about 20 years. And guess what they call the time we currently live in? Very creatively, post-postmodernism, right? But it fell apart in the 1990s. It is not livable and it's not workable because nobody wants to go into surgery with a doctor who got through med school by saying to the instructor, well, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. Nobody wants to fly in an airplane where the engineer who built it doesn't believe personally in the laws of aerodynamics. You want to live in a nation that is a safe and wholesome place to live. You don't want to live in a place that bases its laws without any sense of objective moral truth and just leaves it up to each person to decide what feels right for them. So how good is it that we have a God who is righteous? That is one of the praises that we want to speak today. We have a God who sets the perfect standard for what is right and he upholds it. And think about this. What if God was omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, he's sovereign, which he is. We looked at that a few weeks ago. What if he was those things, but he wasn't righteous? Then the world would be a horrifying place to live indeed. Because then you and I would be left up to the whims of a capricious God who could just wipe us out at the drop of a hat if he was having a bad day. Without a righteous God, without God being righteous, it almost sounds like hell, doesn't it? That's what life would be like. Or what about this? What if we had the opposite? What if God was indeed righteous, but he was not omnipotent? He was not all-powerful that he could actually implement it. Then it wouldn't do us any good anyway. So how wonderful that God is both omnipotent and righteous that these two attributes are married together. Esther and I on our trip, we had a 10-hour layover on the way to the conference, and we were in Copenhagen. So we stashed our bags in these lockers they had at the airport, and we got a ticket for the metro, the subway system, and we went to explore the city. And in the center of the city, we climbed the famed 
round tower, this medieval tower that takes you all the way up and gives you this overlook of the old city of Copenhagen. And near the top of the round tower, there was this little alcove that was cut out. And it had a bench and then windows overlooking the city. I wrote down what it said. Over this alcove was painted the words, Kusebenken. Kusebenken. Now, I didn't need to know Danish to know that that means this was a kissing bench. So I grabbed my wife's hand, and we spent a hilarious minute or two trying to take a selfie of us smooching on the kissing bench in between tourists who were walking by. And I can tell you that none of the photos turned out, but we had fun trying. Now, why am I telling you this? Good question. (laughs) Because of Psalm 85. Psalm 85 says, Righteousness and peace kiss each other. God's righteousness is wedded to his peace, which means we can cherish it instead of being crushed by it. I want to move into the final section of the message by now asking the question, well, what follows then from the righteousness of God? Because there are certain implications that comes from God's righteousness, kind of like how when a summer rain comes, we probably are due after the church barbecue, it can come. But there are certain things that follow. A summer rain comes and your grass greens up. And you can see the flowers around your house perk up. And the robins will come and start to hop around your yard. So riding on the coattails of God's righteousness are certain truths that we don't want to miss this morning. So number one, what follows from the righteousness of God? Answer number one, God is trustworthy because he always does what is right. One of the systematic theologies I was reading in my study for this week defined righteousness as God's holiness applied to his relationships. And a righteous God means he's a trustworthy God. Psalm 19 said it. It said the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. What a much needed quality for us today. That God is trustworthy. Because a lot of us in our time and place, we carry around a pretty healthy amount of cynicism. We're pretty guarded about trusting other people who would say they're trustworthy. We don't typically trust politicians. We don't typically trust salesmen who's trying to upsell me or give me that used car that's really a lemon. And you know, I mean, the statistics say we actually, a fair number of us, don't trust pastors either. Now, I'm not complaining as I share that with you. There's probably some well-placed mistrust if that trust has been betrayed before. But the fact remains, trust is a precious commodity. It comes in on foot. Have you heard the saying before? But it leaves on horseback. Another old saying, trust is built in drops, but it leaves in buckets. But God is entirely trustworthy. And that's like being able to lay down your head on the pillow at night and know that you are safe. He's trustworthy. I'm in good hands. Number two, second implication. God upholds what is right and he punishes what is wrong. As we hinted at before, culturally, we're in a time and place 
where the first part of that statement is a lot more comfortable sounding than the second part of it. We like the sound of God upholding what is right, but we bristle at the mention of a God who would punish what is wrong. But true righteousness actually requires both. So God not only upholds what is right, and next week we'll talk more about that, our theme will be His justice. He not only upholds what is right, but He must, by His nature, punish what is not right. Because to leave it unpunished would be to leave unrighteousness in place, which God cannot by His own nature do. You know who has a great sense of this, I think? I see a lot of them seated around our tables. Who has a great sense of this? It's kids. Kids. If somebody in my house is getting away with something that they shouldn't, I could tell you as the dad, I hear about it. You know, I mean, nobody likes to tattletale, but really, we are hardwired as image bearers of God to know that wrongdoing is not right and needs a consequence. You and I would not want to live in a society where wrongdoing goes unchecked. That's called anarchy. Thanks be to God that we live in a country that seeks to uphold what is right imperfectly, but that is the aspiration, and that punishes what is wrong. And we should note and continue to note that our legal system finds its footing in the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. So what this all means, of course, takes us to our third implication. Number three, I am sinful, but God gives me his righteousness in Christ. This was Katie's lesson with the kids. Start with just the first part. I am sinful. The Bible says this to me. I know it in my heart. And I read about it in Romans 3 where it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if I am sinful and God is righteous, upholding what is right, punishing what is wrong, then that puts me in a very precarious position. Then I've got a problem. But out of his amazing love, God takes my problem upon himself and he sends his son in human flesh to live a perfect righteous life and then to take my place on the cross and bear my punishment for sin. That's why this is so core to the gospel. And the gospel is the best demonstration of God's righteousness. Sin must be dealt with. God cannot just close a blind eye to it. So righteousness is upheld in the death of Jesus. Sin is dealt with at the cross. And God preserves you and I out of his grace. He transfers the righteousness of Christ onto you and me and those who believe in his salvation. And if I'd cross-reference any other verse today, I'd take you to 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says exactly this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. And that leads to our final implication of God's righteousness. And that's how we get to live in response to it. So number four and our last one, I get to live as righteous 
and reflect what God is like. The theme for our conference in Denmark was let your light shine. Let your light shine. And we started in John 8, 12 with Jesus' claim, I am the light of the world. Then we got up the second day and our text was in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You see that shift? It starts with him and his righteousness and then we get to be imitators of his light. Little lights that reflect and shine in the darkness so that others may come to see the light of Jesus. And one of the highlights of our time there at the conference was traveling on a ferry out to an island where in all of Europe, it's the only place like this where there is a church on this Danish island that is at the same time the lighthouse for the island. And in that church, we had a time of worship and prayer and a keynote for that day. And somebody asked, in fact, when we were on our way out there, they said, well, Is it a church with a lighthouse, or is it a lighthouse with a church? And the answer, of course, is yes. And it makes me think, well, are we a church in a YMCA, or are we a YMCA in a church? And the answer is yes. What is God like? We're going to his word every Sunday of this summer to find out. We look to Jesus to see of an even fuller picture, the visible expression of the invisible God. But we also realize under this point that God intended something for us in this matter. That how we live is a way of showing people what he is like, to reflect his character and to reflect the righteousness of God. So we talked a lot of theology today, and I pray that it did not seem dry to you, but that it comes to life. And I want to close by telling you about one more person that I met in Denmark. Her name was Irina. She's 22 years old, and she is from Ukraine. One night after our last conference session had ended, I was up playing a game with some of the other conference attendees. And, you know, at a conference, you can always tell who are the older people at the conference and who are the younger ones. Because when the last session ends, like at Shamanah, right, the older people all go to bed. The younger people are already, like, they're asking themselves, well, what's next? What are we going to do? The night is young. And so there we were, of all things, in Denmark, and I'm playing a card game with a Mongolian a Czech, a Colombian, and a German, and we are playing the game Exploding Kittens. A card game. So there we are, and and yet in the midst of this game, I can hear this voice singing in the distance. It was just carrying through this conference area, and it was, I mean, it was dark outside, and so I went to inspect who is singing. It was just one of those crystal clear voices where the tone just cuts through the air. And I went to investigate and there was Irina in the darkness of the lobby that was closed for the night and she's strumming the guitar and she's singing worship songs. The next morning was Sunday. 
our closing worship service. We happen to have many YMCA dignitaries who came then for the Sunday worship service. The CEO of YUSA, the president and general secretaries of YMCA Europe, members of the executive committee of the World YMCA. And in the middle of the worship service, Irina gets up and she comes to the front where they've asked her to sing the 23rd Psalm in Ukrainian. So in a language that most any of us cannot understand, she is singing these words from the 23rd Psalm. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I thought, as goosebumps went up and down my body, I thought, may the righteousness of God touch our hearts this deeply that we would be overwhelmed and full of gratitude for the God who is righteous and invites us into his love. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, Check us out online at thewhychurch.org.